hello and welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum's podcast, Talking Stories. I'm Deirdre and oh. I'm also with... Stephen. And Stephen has been one of my favourite storytellers here because you never know what's going to come out next. Will we talk about Croker? Will we give out about WB Yeats? Who knows? But today's story is one that's very special to us. And it's about a woman called Lady Betty, Ireland's first female executioner, as told by Eleanor in our first podcast of this year uh, called Where the Story Begins. <laughs> in a cottage on the southern coast of Ireland lived a woman called Elizabeth, a poor farmer's wife. A poor farmer indeed, for when Elizabeth's husband died, she and her three children were left destitute, evicted from their land. Elizabeth and her children walked 150 miles to Roscommon in the northeast of Ireland for better prospects, a better life. Three children started on that journey with her. Only one child arrived with Elizabeth to Roscommon town, her eldest son, Paulrick. The other two children having died along the way of starvation and exposure. Elizabeth and her son settled in an abandoned shack on the edge of the town and survived by taking lodgers in the evenings for pennies and, and begging on the streets. Elizabeth loved Porrick fiercely, so much so that as soon as he was old enough, he hightailed it to America to join the Continental Army and seek his fortune and have adventures. Elizabeth, though, was left heartbroken, convinced she would never see her son again. As the long, lonely years passed and the letters from Podrick dried up, she became bitter and cruel, retreating to her hovel with little contact from any human. The years passed and one night, a tall, bearded stranger with a strange accent knocked on Elizabeth's door, asking to take refuge from the wind and rain outside and offering plenty of money in return. Elizabeth invited him inside and offered him her own bed in which to sleep. That night, the sound of all the gold coins in the young man's purse rang over and over in her head. Years of, of bereavement, desperation, betrayal, poverty, injustice bubbled to the surface and the temptation was too much for her. As the young man slept soundly in her bed as her guest, Elizabeth crept into him and stabbed him to death. When the deed was done, she took his purse, his bag, and searched through the man's belongings. But it was only when she found his documents that Elizabeth discovers she had killed her own son, Podrick, unrecognisable after the long years apart in America and savouring the surprise he was going to spring on her, that he was going to take her home over the sea with him to meet his family where she, where she would live in comfort and peace for the rest of her days. But that, of course, was not to be. Elizabeth ran out onto the street, screaming, tearing her hair out, and she was arrested. She was sentenced to ex execution by hanging for her crime. Now, this was back in the 1700s and executions took place in public for an audience who wanted a good spectacle. 
There was a type of gallows used at the time that could accommodate multiple hangings simultaneously. It was very efficient. So, on the day Elizabeth was brought to this place of execution to be hanged, she was one of 25 convicts all meant to be hanged that day in front of a huge crowd. But there was one problem. Roscommon's only hangman had called in sick. No one was willing or able to carry out the executions. This was a nightmare for the sheriff of Roscommon Jail. All these convicts couldn't go back to the jail and do it another day because it was severely overcrowded and their places had already been taken by new prisoners. The crowd gathered at the gallows were baying for blood, close to rioting if they weren't appeased, if they didn't get what they wanted. What was he going to do? Well, Elizabeth, who had been watching the sheriff and this man panic to and fro this whole time, stepped forward and looked him dead in the eye. Spare me, she said, and I'll hang them all. And she did. This woman, with apparently nothing to live for, wanted to save her own skin that badly. And she hanged every single one of her fellow convicts that day, coldly and without remorse, without hesitation. And when she was finished, she was brought back to her cell. The crowd dumbfounded at this woman hanging all these people. Some time passed, and that sick hangman died himself of his illness. And, having proven her aptitude for the task, Elizabeth was given the post of executioner of Roscommon Jail, Ireland's first female executioner. If that last sentence there thrills you in any way if you enjoy that fact of Elizabeth being Ireland's first female executioner you might be a white feminist or something and you should probably you know take a look at yourself and unpack it a little you know no one should be executing but perhaps that's just my opinion Elizabeth carried out her work unmasked undisguised she came to be known by the people of Roscommon as Lady Betty. And of course today there are some people, a small number in fairness, who would have supported Lady Betty wholeheartedly as the country's first female executioner in a male-dominated industry. But in Betty's time, the people of Roscommon didn't see it like that at all. For generations, mothers would warn their children that Lady Betty was out to get them if they were bold. She was forced to live in an apartment inside the prison for fear of violence and attack from the townspeople, and understandably so, because Betty seemed to relish her new job, which also involved carrying out public flogging as a punishment in the middle of the town. She even had a scaffold erected right outside her bedroom window, and the victim had to crawl out with the noose around their neck and stand there as she pulled a lever and they dropped. I mean, we've all had to adapt to working from home these days, but that's just ridiculous. Each person she executed would then be drawn on her bedroom walls with charcoal as they swung outside her window. The Sheriff of Roscommon Jail and Lady Betty seemed to become fast friends. 
and after some time, he even brought her up to Dublin and got her a pardon for her crime of killing her son. He was so grateful for her work and dedication to her craft. Lady Betty, when she died, was actually buried beneath the grounds of Roscommon Jail, an unmarked grave, so the people of Roscommon couldn't find her. It's it's a it's a fun story. It's a very interesting story, and there's there's a lot of kind of layers to it if you look at it right. The way you say layers, <laughs> it's like you just hear it the way you say it. But yes, definitely so many parts to it. Um, what was like? Was there one moment in the story, or was there a series of moments that stood out to you in the story? Oh. Um... I think with with Lady Betty herself, um, just just taking out her frustrations, taking all of the frustration and sadness and anger, and just just using it, <laughs> just just trying to find. I I won't say constructive because no, <laughs> it's more destructive. <laughs> but but a. a A kind of nearly socially acceptable and certainly <laughs> profitable outlet for it. <laughs> I love the way you just. I'm just going to be diplomatic about this. <laughs> she did it for society. She did it for not necessarily the greater good, but for what the period of time they felt it was necessary. Yeah, like. Yeah. What's socially acceptable in a society is. Really, a very strong reflection of the society itself. Oh, <laughs> Did anyone else hear the can of worms opening? <laughs> oh, no. Find every one of those worms. <laughs> Do you know what? More power. I'll help you. I'll help you, alright? We can go fishing together, have we? <laughs> we, we find our own hooks. We may not do it Lady Betty style when she had the construction outside of her bedroom <laughs> window, but we can do it our own way. You, you, you open up the can of worms and then you take each of the worms and use them as bait. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's actually... That's an awful lot of social justice discourse, actually. <laughs> but you know what? It's actually for the good. <laughs> it's for the better. Oh, God. Because sometimes, it's like, especially in the stories as well, there's like the positive side of it is what you think's going to be the like you think there's going to be sadness around it, mm-hmm. but you actually realise no, that's the good ending. That's a good part of it. Like in the story of it, it's uh, when it comes to the likes of Lady Betty. Yes, she she did some awful things, and in the eyes of others, she cont- contributed to that strange society. But the fact that she's now in like an unmarked grave in Roscommon, mm-hmm. outside of uh, where the where the jail was it's kind of like there's this story about this absolute phenom about this absolute tornado of a of a just a, a spirit if you want to call her that and now all of a sudden vanish into the ether and no one really knows well in in a way you could look on that as a victory for her because she got to do what she wanted to do she got to she got to take out all of her rage and her anger and her her frustration and then no one got to do it with her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they don't know where she is. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, I hadn't even thought of that. Like, even, like, the, like, 
just her whole like her part like the backstory of her as well mm. when she decided like just to start a new life for for herself and the kids mm-hmm. and then like we were talking about something about this before is that they went on such this walk that the kids no longer were there now obviously what could have happened was starvation you know we're not going to make light of that uh, if, even in that time period in in like most of Europe starvation or not most children didn't survive very long no uh, there is there is a reason why the average age of death was 30 it's because the the sheer amount of children who would die throws the out, throws the numbers off <laughs> they're outliers and should not be counted <laughs> oh gosh oh gosh but it is that, oh gosh that's going to play in my head for a while now <laughs> oh man because like it was it's it's kind of like the sort of the anonymities that she sort of has well not when she was alive anyway but but she was sort of coming into town and when you're creating a story yourself Mm -hmm. when you're telling a story for people or just telling a story for yourself and you find there's this elusive figure no one's completely certain of their origins and no one's truly certain of where they may lay to rest so do you prefer a story that has a fully fledged background like a story of say like a warrior or a hero or do you prefer that sort of mystery about them that's a that's an odd question because I don't really see it as a matter of preference okay there there are different styles of not just story because she's she's a historical figure she actually existed um so it's not just like different styles of story it's just different ways of people being in their society and that's still important an important kind of story and the even the absence of any kind of background for her shows a lot about the society she lived in because there was probably many ways of finding that out such as asking her but it seems that nobody did any of them which again shows like the 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 priorities of the society and mm-hmm. whose whose background is important and whose isn't and that kind of thing. Yeah, actually, if you just had a straight conversation with Lady Percy, <laughs> we would understand a lot more. Which okay. also, like, probably contributed greatly to her general frustration and anger. Because yeah. like another thing that came about it from like from her time as an executioner is that she would do sketches of those she's executed with charcoal. Yeah. So it's like even the getting the frustrations out of. Mm-hmm. whatever pressures and the air of the society she was in uh, just you think all of that pent up feeling would be let go with those who were meeting their end no she still wants to sketch them like, yeah, and, and like doing yeah. it on the walls of her own, own home on the, on the inside walls yeah. that's, that's very Francisco de Goya um, <laughs> in his later years when he went crazy and painted a lot of bizarre stuff on the inside of his house um, all of his yeah. really disturbing stuff was done that way and it seems very similar like they were both in a very kind of dark grim beleaguered mindset and so they start doing dark grim gruesome kind of art in their home at like as part of their home mm-hmm. that is that is intense 
So are we th- are we saying that Lady Betty could have been like an amazing like director, producer of film like De Goya? Oh well, like not necessarily like an amazing artist because. I don't know. It doesn't talk at all about the quality of her art, because why would it? Um, Maybe just say amazing so they don't, you know, turn around and get you on the news. <laughs> but, um, but there was obviously like more that she needed to get out, mm-hmm. um, and who who knows what she was like trying to express through through drawing the executed like if it was some kind of a personal memorial for them or it was some kind of regret or sympathy or if it was just like a serial killer collecting trophies it I, I could have been just, anything I just kind of took it as her improving her technique over time and she was keeping notes of her technique <laughs> like, okay so if I get somebody from Roscommon that's okay they go this way and if I get somebody from Donegal okay yeah we figured something out that kind of way <laughs> Now we're not we're not trying to make light of those who've passed on or those who've been in in the grasp grasp of Lady Betty at all, but it's just more of the the story is mm. what fascinates me for it, um, because we were talking before as well about the son. Yeah. The son, the son is one of those victims, like. But the son had it coming. <laughs> he he one hundred, like okay okay so all of the hardship Betty and and her son would have suffered was due to colonialism. Yes. Okay. All of okay. it. Yeah, so he decides to go off and join a colonial army in another country to do the same stuff and worse to other people, like to, to indigenous Americans and that kind of thing. That's... He's a traitor. <laughs> like, he's an absolute traitor. <laughs> he had it coming. <laughs> records of him doing sketches like well there have been records of him drawing pictures of, uh, <laughs> of as I think because you think like are these the conversations that the two of them would have after walking for days upon miles upon miles after losing two of their siblings are mm-hmm. these the conversation they would have with each other as they're just trying to get through whatever distance to some kind of freedom or some mm. kind of new life for themselves were they going to exchange notes because they kind of had a feeling what their future profession was going to be Possibly. Or is that like, just me reading into too many true crime things? <laughs> <laughs> like I could I could see for I could see for the, the, the son definitely like I doubt the idea of him like going off to join the army came out of nowhere. Yeah. With like again we don't have much on Lady Betty's actual thought process or or the way she she looked at things because Again, why would anyone talk to a, a widow in Ireland and to care about what she thinks? But, yes. um, God forbid she's her own brain and she can talk. You know? But, oh. but from what we do know, it looks like becoming executioner was kind of like a spur of the moment kind of thing. It was mm-hmm. like, this is an opportunity right before me right now, so I'm going to take it because mm-hmm. I don't want to die. Yeah. But yeah, it could have been... It, 
I, I imagine her life experience may have had played into it mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. But ima- like, imagine being in that crowd and they're saying, oh no, the actually like the hangman's gone off ill. Mm-hmm. Is there somebody willing to jump up for a bit? And like, imagine like the feeling before she says, oh, I'll do it. And just imagine <laughs> that feeling of, could you imagine like the gasps? Could you imagine someone turning around saying, what? No, okay. Something we've touched on before mm-hmm. was this society feeling of like, why should there be a female hang woman uh, or hang person? Um, and then there is, it turns around of, who would actually want to take on that job mm-hmm. in like rural, rural Ireland to take on that job? Because for an awful lot of people, like what's said is that this was kind of a spectacle. Um, this was their sort of thing of, oh, you never guess who's going to be hung last, next week, yeah. you know? And that sort of spectacle element. But nobody wants to take the role of being the hangman, hangwoman, the person that's going to be doing the job. Because let's be honest, I don't think that's anybody's dream job. I don't think Lady <laughs> Betty says, look, I've always wanted to do it. Now it's my time to shine. You know, I don't think she... Yeah, like... Uh, if you're going to have executions and if you're going to insist on having an executioner, then anyone whose life ambition is to become executioner should not be executioner <laughs> under any circumstances. Yes. Oh, God. Is that going to be like, you're that kid in primary school. What do you want to be when you grow up? Executioner. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Oh, man. But when it's um one thing that I loved learning about in school was in when it came to the likes of the French Revolution, obviously they had the guillotine and yeah. the likes of that's when it like became the uh the spectacle for themselves. But I always read about the women or the ones that would sit front row with their knitting needles and just start knitting yeah. and throwing abuse at those <laughs> who were meeting their ends. And it was just could you imagine like what would happen if you're in the crowd and just the blood starts flying? And then all of a sudden, like, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but when Lady Betty jumped up to take the position, was her son still in the crowd with her? Or who did he go after her, her, son, her son was gone at this point. Her son was gone yeah. at that point, I can't remember. But imagine, like, thinking, oh, God, what is she going to be doing next? Like, if you're, gonna, if, if you're the child and the parent, and mm-hmm. the child is now watching the parent without a cover on their face being the executioner. <laughs> like, just, yeah. Yeah, there's going to need to be an awful lot of long conversations. <laughs> yeah. But was there like other parts of the story that you had you had heard of before? Because like, like, Lady Betty is one of those sort of like, yeah. like she was a historical figure, she was a real life person mm. that we talked about, but there's this sort of like air of mystery and urban legend about other parts of her as well. But was there a section of the stories that you hadn't heard, you didn't know about before? The, the, before coming here... Mm-hmm. The parts of the story I hadn't heard before were the entire story. All of the parts. <laughs> All of them. Yeah. Because like, we're, like, we're both weird as Dublin kids ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it's always nice to hear, st- like, when we started work. I know myself, when I started working here, I got to hear about more characters and more people that came from all walks of life, all mm. parts of the country. And when you find someone like Lady Betty, or when you find someone who's such a character... Or even the people who collect the stories, like Thomas Croft and Croker, or mm-hmm. those who uh, tell the stories, even that you become so obsessed with them because it's uh, it's something you never really learned about in school. Yeah. Although for Eleanor, she did it as her project when she was eighteen, and um, you wouldn't have really learned about her on the school curriculum or anything no. like that. So it's fascinating what 
sort of rabbit holes you can get yourself into. That that's one of the that's one of the things about folklore though is that like there there's no end to how much you can keep digging. And the more you dig, the more of these things you find, the more of these people you find. Mm-hmm. And like some of them like one I found during this year, I, I didn't tell anything about him on the podcast because I thought maybe it was a little too dark, but um, then again, we've got Lady Betty. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Michael Roberts. I only found three stories about him in the entirety of the archive. Um, But, like, Midland's Necromancer. (laughs) (laughs) It's just amazing, like, how you can find these things that look like they were probably at one point a, a big common thing in a, a certain locality, and now no one has ever heard of them. Yeah, it's. Um, I find from researching like certain individuals that there's, you kind of hear the name, or yeah. people might talk about the name, but you don't know why they're talking about them. Yeah, some people aren't willing to tell the stories for fear what could happen to them if they let go of a family story connected to, say, that person. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't want to be attached to, oh, yeah, sure, you're the one who uh, phoned over uh, Mike Roberts for a cup of tea and he did a bit of necromancy for your departed <laughs> dog. Yeah, was that you? And there's that kind of element to it sometimes because people don't want to sort of, one, let out secrets or two, mm-hmm. have sort of evilness follow them. Um, but another thing as well is, for an awful lot of people at the time as well, like... Uh, writing these things down was almost unheard of. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's like um it's it's like if you if you wrote a book on how to celebrate Christmas. Mm-hmm. Like most people wouldn't do that because everyone knows how to celebrate Christmas. You just pick it up, it's all around you. And that's what folklore is. It's mm-hmm. the stuff you don't bother writing down because everyone knows that. Yeah. And then, like, in when it comes to, like, say, cause, because the archives, the stuff that's on Dukas is from, like, the 1930s and 1950s, 50 years later, we're like, oh, gosh, I, you have completely forgotten where certain stories about the likes of certain birds have come from or certain, yeah. like, some might, people might call them old wilds tales of mm-hmm. how do you cure warts? You get potato skin. And if it wasn't for those kind of stories written down or passed on, be gone into mm-hmm. the ether like like there is a one story of my granddad he was headmaster in a kids uh, national school in Kells and he found out that my cousin born in the like late 70s early 80s had the crew cough so what the time of the cure for the, for the cough was was if you go to the cavern in Meath border you find a bishop's skull you drink water <laughs> from the bishop's skull and that's meant to be the cure or the remedy yeah. for the cough now one my cousin stopped coughing he's mm-hmm. still with us today he's got two kids they're bloody adorable but it's always the element of did my granddad really find a bishop's skull? <laughs> and how did he know about this? Was this just something that was passed on from a mate? Or did he learn this from a book? Like, how did he really find where a bishop's skull would be perfectly between the cavern and me for like, see, see, what's really funny about that is yeah. that that's absolutely folk medicine. Oh, completely. That, that's, yeah, that's what completely. that is. Yeah. But I used to get that exact cough, the croup, every year. No. Every single year. And we used a folk remedy for it as well. Um, but it was a very, very different kind of folk remedy. We'd make tea with carrageen moss, which is um, a kind of seaweed. Oh, wow. It's usually harvested on the, the West Coast. And um, yeah, that, that, would, that would actually help clear it up a bit. But um, just the fact that 
like literal something very very kind of magical and mystical like getting a, a bishop's skull from a very specific point and drinking from that and then herbal remedy yeah. um, are both folk medicine they're both equally folk medicine yeah. is just a part of how wide and expansive and, and interesting the field is yeah. the whole field of folklore and I think I'm only dying to know what did that tea actually taste like when you were a kid um when we were a kid, we put in a lot of a lot of honey as well, nice, um, nice. but the texture is bizarre because um, when you put it in hot boiling water, it actually kind of dissolves. Oh! And it's like I'm going to be honest; it's like drinking a cup of hot snot <laughs> um, oh, no. <laughs> in terms of texture. But um, oh, honey. Oh, honey. oh, I didn't mean that. Oh gosh! Oh no! Oh no! Oh, God. <laughs> that's like... Oh, man. Oh, that's, oh, my dear. Yeah, fair play to you for doing that. <laughs> even stomaching that or even, like, taking sips of it because you just want to knock it back and... <laughs> oh, we... we, we are, I still keep, like, some carrageen moss around the house just in case now. Um, you're not supposed to get croup as much as, as an adult, and when you do, it's supposed to be very dangerous. Uh-huh. I did get it... Oh, it was a few years ago now, around New Year's, I got a bad case of the croup mm-hmm. for the first time at, in a long time. Yeah. Um, so now I just keep some of the stuff around just in case. <laughs> just for memory's sake. If you will, like a charcoal sketching on the wall. Or <laughs> ah, that's how it used to be as well. Oh my gosh. I have to, have to tell my mum now about a cup of tea now when I go home as well. <laughs> Gosh, because it's, it, it's, it's great because like when you sort of have those sort of like things that you know you're familiar with, the, the types of the teas or the folk medicines you've grown yeah. up with or the stories that are attached to certain places or certain people, they really do stay with you. Mm. Um, and I know when you're, like just in general, when we're telling a story, it's almost like you want to bring that character alive. On like it like there's elements of no I'm not saying I've executed people in a past life and I know <laughs> I did do that procedure while telling the story of Lady <laughs> Betty not at all but when I remember um, when Eleanor first joined us here uh, joined us here as a storyteller this was actually her audition story yeah and she told it to Tom the director and the way she tells the story is you, you heard it yourself like when you get to hear the story in person as well. It's it's so captivating because I'm pretty sure she's an evil genius anyway because she's really good at everything. And Eleanor, yes, we love you because I know you're listening right now. Um, but it's she just puts on this sort of character within the story yeah. to amplify it a bit more. Like, would you do that with certain stories yourself? I, it's 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 kind of almost necessary. I think like you've got to. You've got to not not even necessarily embody the the characters in the story, but the tone mm-hmm. of the story itself. Like if it's if it's a story like Lady Betty, you want to sound maybe a little bit sinister, and you might. There's lots of different ways of doing that. Um, but yeah, with with that kind of story, you want to sound a little bit sinister. With something like say, Fionn McCool or Cucullin, you want to sound very big and epic. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you you just want to kind of embody the tone. Yeah, definitely. 
I gotta say, it, it really is a like we said before. It was a character that or a person that neither of us had really heard before before yeah. entering the museum. So it, it's always good to know that there's even more out there that we can find. Oh, endlessly! Yeah. Like even even outside of the archives, like folklore doesn't stop ever. <laughs> it's still being generated. It's being generated right now, all over the place. It is impossible to know all of it. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you do. Well, Stephen, it's the first time I've gotten to see you in a very, very long time. And getting to share stories <laughs> and getting to hear about, just listening to you talk about folk tales again and talk about folklore and research has made me so, so happy today. <laughs> so thank you so, so, so much for letting me share some stories with you. Well, thank you, Deirdre, for the same. And also, um, thanks for listening to us talk about stories again. Uh, there'll be a new podcast coming up very soon and even more as well but please do watch out for Eleanor she could be a new Lady Betty <laughs> as she watches me right now <laughs> help us please and uh, subscribe to the podcast uh, if you leave a review that's actually very very helpful it helps uh, it helps bring up our place and recommendations and that kind of thing we have a YouTube channel you should subscribe to that and follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the other things. Pretty please. The more you do that, the more likely Eleanor won't get us. We all live on the internet at this point. You know what to do. <laughs> so from myself and from Deirdre, goodbye. Bye-bye.